I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And certainly one person who knew a lot about dignity was Winston Churchill. It was he who advised, never let a good crisis go to waste. The white supremacists are suddenly in full gear, ready for civil war at state houses across America. The far-right religious nationalists were, of course, given new life by the truly shocking victory of a president who was described by the daughter of George C. Wallace as being more, far more racist than he was. Religious nationalists, who are in no way conservative, thought they could label themselves as that. But we were warned against the far right by Barry Goldwater, who was seen at the time in 1964 as a right-wing extremist. But Barry Goldwater even, he said, Mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the Republican Party— and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise, but these Christians won't compromise, believe they are acting in the name of God. I know I've tried to deal with them. End of quote from Goldwater, who used to be considered right wing. And in her book, Claire Connor, the daughter of John Birch Society parents, wrote in her book, Wrapped in the Flag, the right today, which has taken over the Republican Party, is far more extreme than her parents were. And as Goebbels taught Hitler to do, label the critics with what is true about yourself. This is 2020. And such religious nationalism has been with us since the humiliating defeat and resultant fury of the white racists from the former Confederacy, only now it has gone from sheet and hood wearing night riders to control of what used to be the mainstream Republican Party. Now, not all Republicans are hate filled racists, that's true, but one can say all hate filled racists are Republican. And the old saying about why let a good crisis go to waste, the novel coronas, uh, coronavirus, though deadly, uh, is. Uh, breathed new and dangerous rage into the far-right extremists. They, of course, blame the others. The right-wing racists have always been a threat, but now more so than ever. You may have heard of the Southern Poverty Law Center. They've been keeping watch on hate groups uh, for a long time, and in 2020, they and we have our work cut out for us. Today, we have with us Cassie Miller, a senior research assistant for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, and Howard Graves, senior research analyst assigned to the uh, uh, Intelligent Project's White Nationalist Desk. Well, first off, let's uh, talk about the SPLC. Not everybody has heard of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So what is that? Now, um, hi, Bert. Thank you for having us. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center was founded in 1971 in Montgomery, Alabama, as a way to maintain the gains of the civil rights movement through litigation and advocacy. Um, so initially, we filed lawsuits against municipalities who were failing to uphold civil rights laws. But in the early 1980s, we began pursuing litigation against Klan groups uh, when we saw resurgence of violence and intimidation that followed the end of the civil rights movement. And we had sort of a novel strategy, which was to use civil suits to hold Klan groups responsible for the violence that their members committed. Um, so the first uh, trial that we got involved in was in 1981 when we defended Vietnamese fishermen um, who were being terrorized by the Klansman Louis Beam and his followers. Um, and then since then, every year since 1990, we've been releasing an annual census of hate groups in the United uh -huh. States. And that's what we're going to focus on today. The uh, SPLC Southern Poverty Law Center recently released the Year in Hate and Extremism 2019. And here we are in 2020 already. It's getting ratcheted up pretty high. The number of white nationalist groups identified by the SPLC rose for the second straight year, a 55% increase since 2017 when Donald Trump's campaign energized white nationalists 
who saw them as an avatar of their grievances and uh, their anxiety over the country's demographic changes. And that's a big deal. This comes on the heels of three consecutive years of decline near the end of former President Obama's time in office. And I naively thought the election of a black president would significantly reduce racial hatred. Boy, was I wrong. It only uh, ratcheted it up, unfortunately. Now, the, the recent increase in uh, hate and extremism groups uh, is your report dovetails with Trump's campaign and then the presidency, a period that has seen a 30% increase in the number of these groups, said Heidi Heidi Byrick, director of the Intelligence Project. In the three years prior to that, during the waning years of Obama's presidency, hate groups were actually on the decline. Rather than trying to tamp down hate, as presidents of both parties have done, President Trump elevates it. And with both his rhetoric and his policies, and in doing so, he's given the people across America the go-ahead to act on their worst instincts, end of quote. And this is uh, quite a brave new world we have now with tremendous fear, not unreasonable fear of COVID-19, and the angry backlash against safety rules. The far right is, as Churchill advised, not letting a good crisis go to waste. Though, So I, I am... In addition to being an SPLC supporter, uh, I'm also a member of the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, which protects our constitutional freedoms. The First Amendment exists to protect offensive speech. In 1978, the uh, ACLU took a controversial stand for free speech by defending a neo-Nazi group that wanted to march through the Chicago suburb of of, uh, Skokie, where many Holocaust survivors lived. As Americans, our freedom of speech is treasured. The term hate speech has been controversial in this light. I subscribe to the notion, I think this is the best way to define uh, freedom of speech limits. My, my right to throw a punch ends where someone else's nose begins. Can hate speech be defined so as to still protect our First Amendment rights? I wanted to get that out of the way first. Hey, thank you. Um, so you mentioned the example of Skokie, uh, and I'll say that there are pretty clear parallels between that planned march and what we saw unfold in August 2017 uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, published, you know, numerous uh, numerous resources for communities in the run up to Charlottesville, basically explaining why there had been this repeated emphasis on holding uh, public demonstrations uh, by the far right and why a lot of those had centered around Charlottesville. Um, and what those served to do was to uh, accurately demonstrate uh, and describe the rhetoric uh, that these groups were using, rhetoric that demeans whole classes of people for their race, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity. So that, you know, that description, you know, labeling a group as a hate group, does nothing to silence anyone's freedom of speech or assembly or, uh, you know, to infringe on any of their other enumerated rights. It serves to educate the public. Um, and where we do advocate for policies against hateful activities, uh, particularly in our work with uh, the Change the Terms Coalition uh, to draft model policies for social media companies, we rely on a definition of, quote, hateful activities um, that does not center on precluding protected speech but encourages uh, companies to bar activities that incite or engage in violence, intimidation, harassment, threats, defamation, all things that are already illegal. That makes a lot of sense, and it's it's so important when we're talking about laws to define and have very, very specific words. I, I used to work in what I call a law factory. I was in the state senate. We made laws, and every word, you know, is really important, and I think you just defined uh, very clearly a, a distinct difference between hate speech and normal offensive speech, which has to be protected by the First Amendment rights. That's, that's good to get out of their way. Now, the, the far right tossed their hoods and sheets aside in the 20th century. How have social media and the internet, which they didn't have in the 20th century, helped spur the growth of extremists? And I wonder if you can cite some examples. Yeah, I mean, before the advent of the Internet, extremists and their ability to spread their propaganda and to train radicalize others was really limited to things like print media and to the radio. And, you know, they were actually early adopters of the Internet because they realized how much it would help them to propagandize. So, I mean, as early as 1984, the Klansman Lewis Beam started um, LibertyNet, which contained recruitment materials and 
allowed extremists to kind of forge connections with each other across wide geographic boundaries. Um, the next year, the white supremacist Don Black created Stormfront, which until really recently was one of the largest neo-Nazi sites on the internet. Um, in the early 2000s, they actually you know, took to social media really early to spread their message. And we've seen over and over again the impact that online radicalization can have. Um, you know, one example that I can point to is Dylan Roof, um, who killed several church members in mm-hmm. Charleston. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on Google and he searched for black on white crime. And one of the first things that came up was the website of the Council of Conservative Citizens, um, which led him to believe that there was a mass underreported um, epidemic of crime being committed by black people against white people. And it led to him eventually committing a massacre. Um, you know, there's the example of the Unite the Right rally in 2017. That rally was planned on Facebook and Discord. Mm. Um, and those platforms didn't do anything really to remove that content into the, you know, the lead up of the rally. And it was only after we had a huge tragedy after Heather Heyer was killed at that rally that we saw them actually, you know, make an effort to remove hateful content that radicalizes people and allows extremists to organize on their platform. Um, You know, this is still a huge problem that we're constantly trying to contend with. I mean, you know, some of the most well-known white supremacists are still operating online. So right now you could go on Twitter and find David Duke and Richard Spencer's um, accounts on there. Hmm. Yeah. And it used to be that the, that the way to hide, you know, they could be uh, upstanding citizens, wink, wink, in the uh, in the old South, but they had to put on sheets and hoods to hide their identity. Well, now we have the internet mm-hmm. where you can hide your identity and, and be far more uh, effective than they were uh, back then. I mean, you know, they were terrorists back then, and frankly, I see some degree of terrorists now. It it does seem, you know, they, they talk about, they, they used to have the burning cross, like the word of Jesus, like they're carrying that on. It does seem pretty clear that, that anyone that objects to straight white Protestant male dominance and control becomes the target of hatred. This isn't new. In the 1920s, about 30,000 hooded clanners marched in the streets of D.C. And if I have my history right, back then the targets were black people, Jews, Catholics, and immigrants. And they also had had the tacit support of President Woodrow Wilson, quite the uh, segregationist racist. It does seem that the theme of white male Protestant dominance can control remains, but, but there are new groups they hate. Talk about that, if you would, please. The white male Protestant dominance and control and new groups hated. I think that's a, a pretty important observation for what we're talking about. I mean, white male patriarchy has historically had a monopoly on political power in the United States. That comes with this perception of you know race and uh, gender politics in America as being a zero-sum game. If anybody outside of that in-group, uh, you know, white male Christians, makes any gains or is you know better able to advocate for themselves, then that represents a threat to white male Christian patriarchy. Um, so you know, at various points in our history, the scapegoat has changed, but that underlying animus has kind of remained the same. And you know, recently we've seen uh, a real shift. You know, in the aftermath of 9/11, uh, with the Bush administration's focus on Muslims worldwide, and particularly in America. Um, that has created a, you know, groundswell of uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. Um, more recently, uh, Trump, the Trump administration's race baiting around, you know, the wall uh, and anti-LGBTQ legislation uh, has put those populations at risk. Um, but, you know, at its core, this basic tension remains unchanged, that groups outside of, you know, the, the white male, um, you know, the, the true America, as these people see it, uh, uh, any group outside of that is viewed as a threat. So fascinating. I read a fair amount of history. I find it rather fun. And certainly in the early 20th century, uh, and, and it was used very much during uh, World War One. you know, the 100% Americanism. So if you had a hyphenated name, or were German, anything like that, you were not considered truly American. So it's interesting how, but that used to be seen, well, it was, it was in policy under Woodrow Wilson, 
But for the most part of the latter 20th century, it seemed that uh, it, was, it was outside of the realm of legitimate politics that this extreme white nationalist terror. And you know, I remember when the John Birch Society was considered extreme. They'd be considered probably to the left of some of these groups to, these days. But some of these you know, the ideas and groups, the terror and extremism that used to be outside the realm of legitimate politics seem to be penetrating deeply into the mainstream now and actually spawning public policies. I wonder if either of you could cite some examples of that, please. Right. I mean, at the Southern Poverty Law Center, one of the things that we're always trying to do is to keep these extremist ideas to the fringes and keep them from yeah, penetrating the mainstream because, right, <laughs> because that's where they can do the most damage because they can influence policy. Um, one of the things that we find most concerning and that we're seeing is that the idea of white genocide or oh, yes. demographic displacement, yeah, or the Great Replacement. Um, is becoming more normalized and kind of entering the mainstream. And, you know, white genocide, also known as the Great Replacement, has really been the main animating idea of the white power movement. And I think it's, you know, its influence is, is pretty easy to see. Um, you know, last year, uh, there was an attack on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, where over 50 people died. And the attacker called his manifesto the Great Replacement. Um, you know, a similar motivating factor for the man who attacked the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. And mm. he did so because he believed that Jews were bringing invaders into this country. And to him, that was an act of white genocide. Um, but unfortunately, these ideas don't stay in extreme circles. And we've seen them moving more and more into the mainstream. So, you know, for example, we've seen the idea of the Great Replacement um, being kind of pushed around on Fox News. So hosts like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram have both alluded to this idea and said that, you know, immigrants from places where people are predominantly not white, right. like immigrants from, from Africa, are going to overwhelm this country and change it completely. Um, and this is why people like Tucker Carlson are actually favorites of neo-Nazis like Andrew England, who regularly praises him on his website. Um, but, you know, we've also seen Trump talk about these ideas. He's repeatedly referred to immigrants as invaders. Yes. Um, you know, so many of this administration's policies are really premised on the idea that immigrants are invaders and they represent some existential threat to this country. And that was something that was, you know, animating extremist circles. And unfortunately, it's now animating the administration. Boy, it sure does seem to be in so many different ways. And, of course, at that Charlottesville uh, uh, tragedy when those uh, torch-carrying uh, white supremacists were yelling, Jews will not replace us. That's part of what you're talking about. And uh, just trying to, the replacement theory, it's, it's a, a fear. And fear, as we know, often plays into hate. And we're going to be eventually getting to that in our discussion here with SPLC uh, uh, people. Uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, and uh, our guests are Cassie Miller and uh, Howard Graves, both uh, research people at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And the fear, I mean, I feel fear of COVID-19. I do. You know, it's really, and the fact that uh, the Trump administration seems to be just downplaying it and still, I mean, they're not calling it a hoax anymore, but they're they're just uh, trying to make happy talk. And these, at the statehouse rallies, these, these white male, youngish men, fully armed with AR-15s, uh, what are they about? How does how does that fit into uh, hate groups and and the history that's been there? I mean, it does seem that. How does that fit in? Maybe one or both of you can talk about that. I mean, we know that extremists are kind of constantly trying to take advantage of whatever larger political conversation is having and wedge themselves in so that they can help spread their beliefs. And in some ways, the coronavirus pandemic has allowed them to do that. And the pandemic has created a lot of fear, as you said, and a lot of confusion. And it sort of upended every part of our lives. And so in that confusion, a lot of extremists have stepped forward and, you know, tried to offer 
people answers and try to get media attention for their own beliefs. And so a lot of times these lockdown rallies offer them an opportunity to do that, to actually be on the ground and to offer, you know, their far right interpretation of what's happening. Yeah. And they're, they're blaming the others. And I find it troubling, fascinating that uh, uh, Trump and, and his, his buddy, uh, uh, the uh, justice uh, head of the justice department, Bill Barr, continuing to say, oh, it's the Chinese, the Chinese did it. It's those others that are easy to define. And that wall, you know, that was protecting against invaders who happen to be a little darker than white people. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear cut, but it does seem to be working quite a bit. And it plays on fear. You have to, I mean, you're not going to really, I don't, just my personal opinion is you're not going to have hate without fear. That, that hate comes out of fear. And the government you know, I have disagreed with the government on a number of different things, sometimes agree with them. Laws exist in America, at least in theory, to protect the common good. Now, the FBI, maybe in the late 60s with the anti-war movement, they did some things I would have liked. But in the past, they've been helpful preventing homegrown terrorist attacks, not just from the Muslims. They see that there is more terror. There are more terrorist attacks from from white homegrown males uh, than there are from, uh, you know, people who were invaders as they were. And now, according to your new report, the hate and terrorists uh, in 2019, the Department of Homeland Security announced a strategic shift, which is kind of positive. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I mean, as you noted, uh, federal law enforcement has had a uh, spotty track record at best. Uh, actually, um, you know, combating white supremacist violence, uh, uh, you know, most recently, federal authorities have displayed some conviction on prosecuting uh, crimes committed by you know, modern-day iterations of Ku Klux Klan and any government groups. This was particularly prevalent in the aftermath of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, mm-hmm. 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games bombing. Um, but, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, white supremacist extremism was de-emphasized uh, in favor of targeting Muslims across the board. Uh, The pinnacle of this is kind of represented by a quashed uh, DHS report in 2009 that cited the credible threat from white supremacist extremist uh, recruitment and infiltration of the United States military. Um, Daryl Johnson, the author of that report, uh, was pilloried by uh, far-right media all the way up to Fox News, uh, and pressure from Republicans ultimately, uh, you know, saw a retraction issued for that report. Uh, Daryl Johnson has since uh, left DHS. But what we've seen is that the findings of that report are being borne out today, uh, particularly with events like the Charleston Emanuel AME Church Massacre, Unite the Right, the Tree of Life shooting. Uh, these have uh, really kind of brought to bear the pervasive threat of white supremacist uh, extremist violence particularly to these vulnerable communities. So it, it is heartening to hear federal law enforcement announce this strategic yes. shift. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear. I mean, they have families too. Uh, and, of course, successful prosecution is key. I mean, <laughs> you know, some of the Trump people, money doesn't seem to matter in terms of uh, putting up a defense, Roger Stone, whatever. But your report notes that a full defense of inclusive democracy will require not only appropriate federal action, but all local responses by city, county, and state governments, litigation strategies that hold hate groups accountable for the harm they cause. I imagine that's an interesting area. Has there's been, uh, how, how's the success rate in that area? Not the federal, but the, but the more state, county, local, municipal area. Well, there's a lot of work being done in that regard. Uh, Integrity First for America filed a uh, civil lawsuit on behalf of a group of plaintiffs uh, who um, were uh, residents of the city of Charlottesville and were damaged by the events uh-huh. that happened on August 12, 2017. Um, more particularly, uh, you know, Cassie previously mentioned Andrew Anglin. Um, he has been, uh, you know, incredibly influential in organizing uh, troll campaigns that attack individual people. Um, Dino Badala, a comedian, uh, Taylor Dumpson, who is a uh, college student, or um, uh, Tanya Gersh, a realtor from Montana, who the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center actually represented. But um, there were several million dollars uh, in judgments 
against Andrew Anglin as a result of those three separate lawsuits. Um, and, you know, looking up towards kind of the, the federal scope, we've seen uh, you know, these arrests of members of the base and Foyer Creek Division um, who kind of grew out of uh, a prominent neo-Nazi forum um, that birthed a lot of these kind of uh, accelerationist groups that we're seeing nowadays. Um, that you know, law enforcement infiltration actually prevented several credible uh, threats to life and attacks. Um, whereas other people that had kind of spawned from the same cesspool, uh, you know, individuals associated with the Adam Waffen division, um, were able to successfully perpetrate these attacks. So the difference there being federal law enforcement recognized the danger that uh, these groups presented in the case of Adam Waffen and um, with these similar organizations actually were able to prevent uh, loss of life and property. And you guys focus on, on stuff in the uh, United States. And as you talk, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what's going on in Europe now. There's a lot of the similar kind of stuff. White Protestant males afraid of losing their power and control. There's the uh, alternative for Germany, uh, which is pretty right wing. Uh, and they, they're careful about such things there. They, they know what happens. And, of course, in Hungary, uh, in France, there's been the uh, National Front. It's, it's, this white nationalist stuff is happening, unfortunately, everywhere, and they're latching on to immigration. I mean, a lot of these policies that the United States has had, which uproots people and supports governments, at least down in South, you know, Central America, uh, people are fleeing brutality there and, and coming to America. And what happened in El Paso, I mean, you talk about terror. Uh, they, they were, the guy who did it, who killed, what, 23, something like that, people. I forget how many. But he was, he was trying to stop the Hispanic invasion of Texas uh, and uh, that they're aimed at white genocide. Um, so... How there is a demographic change. That's a fact. And it's been predicted for a long time. I forget what year it should happen that whites will be outnumbered uh, by uh, people who are not white. Uh, I wonder, you know, how much the government can do or is doing when they're sort of, uh, you know, promoting this at the same time. I mean, uh, Trump has done so many things that embolden the hate groups. Uh, they're you know talking about an invasion and the wall. Uh, so this demographic change is this. I mean, it can't be changed. I don't think. I mean, if we had had policies towards Central America that didn't support brutal dictatorships, then they might not be as inclined to leave their homes, which is a big thing to do, and come here. But this demographic change, how how is that affecting uh, white supremacist activity? That must be quantifiable. Well, I mean, I think as you said earlier, a lot of this is simply premised on fear. That's where hate comes from. Um, so demographic change doesn't automatically translate into hate. It doesn't automatically translate into, you know, a growing emboldened white nationalist movement. But demographic change is being wielded by hate groups and uh -huh. by politicians who want to use it to inspire fear in white people who are then led to believe that non-white people represent an existential threat, that their, you know, their way of life um, is threatened by people who are different than them, who look different than them. And we know that hate groups have really successfully organized around this idea that a great replacement is happening around the Western world. And as you said, this is not something that is just animating the white supremacist movement in the United States, but really an international movement, um, you know, White nationalists see themselves really as part of a globally interconnected, interconnected community um, that is all threatened by this idea of the great replacement. Um, and, you know, it's become kind of all the more acute for them because we do know that we're moving closer to a future where white people right. are not the majority in the United States. And um, the Census Bureau predicts that that's going to happen probably around 2040. Um, and, you know, just to show, I think, how... Um, animating this idea is for the movement. You know, if you were to go to the Daily Stormer website, which is yeah. really the, the biggest neo-Nazi site, it has around a million visitors every mm. month. Um, in the corner of the site, there is a countdown that shows down to the second, 
um, how long white people have to remain in the majority in the United States. Um, so, you know, this is their, their big fight. Um, and it's not only animating them, but it's animating the Trump administration. Um, and it is propelling their policies. Um, you know, we've seen Trump repeatedly demonize immigrants, call them invaders, rapists, criminals, drug dealers. Um, and that is, is really shaping the policy that's coming out of this administration. You know, things like trying to end um, DACA, the Muslim ban, um, you know, everything from putting a, a record number of children in immigrant detention centers. Um, this is all premised on the idea that, that immigrants and demographic change are the number one existential threat to the country. Uh. It's so fascinating to to just blame the others there. It's it's always possible. And we talk about, you know, white nationalism. And I have focused, as anybody who listens to the show regularly, <laughs> uh, sorry about that, focused on the First World War. That was all about nationalism. And there is such a huge difference between nationalism and patriotism. Now, Donald Trump, I'm not sure he understands what he means when he says it. Who knows? But he calls himself a nationalist. And a nationalist, by definition, is us versus them. It is that we have something that that is better, that they're not as good as we are. And so, you know, there's this international nationalism, which is very, very frightening, I think. And it's, it's hard to... Uh, to address that, I don't think. I mean, I, I don't think people really understand the threat of nationalism. I mean, it, it was it caused the First World War, where tens of millions of people died. Uh, but you know, you can be patriotic and not nationalistic. I, I certainly consider myself a patriot, but absolutely opposed to nationalism. It's uh, uh, you guys, you 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 have your work cut out for you. You have litigation. And is there education stuff you do, like going into schools and stuff? I wonder how that's being handled. Maybe there's other groups that do that. Yeah, absolutely. Our um, educational outreach uh, branch is called Teaching Tolerance, and they uh, are one of the largest groups that's publishing uh, resources for schools that, um, you know, helps teachers who are trying to, you know, teach these difficult subjects to American students. Oh boy, I bet that fires up the right. Huh. <laughs> they, 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 when I was in the state senate, there was a pretty far right person there who referred to them as as government schools, not public education, government schools, and mm-hmm. uh, it, they, of course, part of their uh, shtick these days seems to be that uh, uh, being an expert in anything, eh, you don't want to be that. It's just as valuable to be ignorant. They, they're really embracing that very much. It, it, they're turning it into sort of a uh, uh, us versus them and uh, those elitists, any kind of elite. So if you're educated, that means you're an elitist. And I don't know how the people running for office uh, can deal with that. It's, it's kind of challenging. I think, you know, when I was growing up, education was highly valued, but not so much anymore. They've been cutting education year after year after year. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with two uh, spokespeople for the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, Cassie Miller and Howard Graves. And we're talking about a recently released Year in Hate and Extremism from 2019. Now, as we mentioned before, uh, Trump shocked the world when he said that these violent white supremacists at the Charlottesville, Virginia rally were, quote, some very fine people. <sighs> There's the question of the president's close advisor, Stephen Miller. The SPLC has quite a knowledge of him and his activities. What is his role regarding immigration policy? Talk for a while about uh, Stephen Miller, if you would, please, and his his role in the White House, his power. So one of our colleagues at the center, uh, Michael Edison Hayden, has done some pretty incredible reporting on uh, Stephen Miller's ties to white nationalism and his explicit promotion of it. Um, working with Katie McHugh, who was a former Breitbart staffer and has since disavowed the white nationalist movement. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, uh, Hayden has uh, demonstrated uh, through a bunch of leaked emails uh, what Stephen Miller actually thinks, uh, and you know, particularly his tactic uh, of using outlets like Breitbart to mainstream white nationalist talking points and even going so far as to recommend uh, white nationalist texts to writers. Uh, you know, these include 
Um, VDARE, uh, which just had a video arguing that whites should secede from the Union, American Renaissance, uh. which is the largest propagator of the black and white crime myth, and Camp of the Saints, uh, one of the most influential books in the white nationalist canon. It's a uh, French novel that you know, depicts this kind of global onslaught of uh, third world immigration as being, you know, incredibly violent uh, and explicitly created uh, with the intent to destroy and kill white people. Um, so Miller has telegraphed his views mm. in the policies that he wants to implement uh, in these emails. Uh, these are policies that dehumanize migrants and rob them of their civil rights. Oh, lovely. I wonder how much power he has with Donald Trump. Any any clue on that? You guys do investigations like crazy, clearly. Well, I would just say if you look at the folks uh, who started out in the Trump administration who are still there, yeah. even Miller is kind of a rare figure in that he's you yeah. know, sort of endured uh, our president's uh, bellicose approach to uh, managing his staff. <laughs> one could use other words than bellicose, but that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's gone through people like it's amazing. That is a very good point. The fact that he is still there, that says quite a bit. And we talk about the media these days. It's amazing to me how so many on the far right blame the media. It's almost and when they say fake news, I seriously doubt they realize that Mussolini invented the word fake news. I think he did. Uh, he certainly used fake news. Anything that was in the news that wasn't supportive of Mussolini, he'd call fake news. And do they imagine that the media all gets together at the same time every day and decides what fake story they're going to do? It's just, I guess they don't think about it. I don't know. But there is, of course... Fox alleged news, and there's even Sinclair news, which isn't, I don't think it's on the radar nearly as much as Fox is. But in your report, you specify Tucker Carlson as part of the problem. Please explain more about Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I mean, Tucker Carlson, probably more than any other figure on Fox News and, and really within the far right media, the right wing media landscape, um, cites white nationalist tropes and helps to really normalize them. For his audience, you know, he's not the only one, um, you know, Laura Ingram, for example, also does the same thing to sort of sanitize these white nationalist ideas and introduce them to the massive Fox News audience. Um, Media Matters for America has done a lot of really good uh-huh. reporting on this and done a lot of really deep dives into Carlson's history and his use of white nationalist rhetoric, um, you know, particularly around the ideas of white genocide and white guilt, um, and, you know, the fact that he's dismissed the idea of white supremacy as a hoax. Obviously, we can't even begin to tackle the problem if we're not even admitting that it's real. (laughs) Yeah, COVID-19 is a hoax, too. Uh Uh-huh. We have uh, 75,000 people or something like that have died so far. Uh, Very Mm -hmm. interesting. And the power that he has, uh, it's it's, uh, very... Very concerning and how we can fight against that. It's, you know, the other media, the mainstream, I was amazed, frankly, last night on ABC, mainstream as you can get, when uh, David Muir uh, was one-on-one with uh, President Trump for, I think, over half of the newscast, alleged newscast. It's, It's kind of, you know, there is a proliferation of other outlets, in the in the with the media, and and the, the uh, social uh, commentary uh, that we can do through the internet, but these these things still have power. I hope that movie, uh, uh, what was it called, Bombshell, helps a bit. People understand that uh, Fox is is not good guys, and uh, the white power there. It's uh, it's kind of surprising in a way, but it's it's kind of always been with us. Um, I do find it interesting that uh, we progressives, I used to call myself a liberal. I'm okay with liberal. I think that got a bad name in 1988 when Dukakis uh, released uh, that guy from jail and liberals uh, just suddenly became a bad word. I'm okay with it. In any event, we liberals, we progressives used to be the opposition. When I was in the state Senate, there was Republicans and Democrats and various uh, different uh, uh, persuasions within that. We were not enemies. We were not enemies. We would work together. Now we have become 
existential threats to America. And a lot of people are believing that, that a Democrat equals a communist, that we're going to take over and, you know, make, make the country be ruled uh, perhaps by black people. Like they, they had that fear after the American Civil War that, uh, that blacks would, would run things and, uh, and, and be in control. So I, don't, I wonder how that can be dealt with at the electoral level. Uh, if it's being done at the electoral level, I know you guys have to stay away from electoral politics being a 501c4, but what do you know about such uh, uh, things that perhaps we can do with regard to how, how liberals are, are uh, labeled and why it's stuck? Yeah, so much? I mean, I think you're right in pointing out that, you know, progressive people on the left are kind of labeled as the enemy and represent this this threat to the true America. And yeah. it's really, you know, a tactic that is at the bedrock of, of fascism, um, you know, or of authoritarian populist rhetoric, um, the vilification of the left and essentially arguing that they don't, you know, represent the true voice of the people and right. that, um, you know, the authoritarian populists do represent the true voice of the people. Um, and that the left is really acting as sort of this, alien force that seeks to undermine the nation. Um, you know, one of the terms that we hear from the far right a lot is that the left um, or, you know, globalists, as, as they often label them, uh-huh. are, um, you know, they're degenerate and that they don't represent the true values of the country um, and true American values. And we know that this tactic can serve a number of purposes. Um, but really the biggest one is that it unites the disparate parts of the right against a common en- enemy, and it can really be effective in mobilizing a, a larger movement on the right. And I think that is something that we've been seeing over the last several years. Whoa. Yeah, the left uh, doesn't seem to ever get that. As uh, Abby Hoffman said many years ago, old uh, 60s uh, activist, the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. It's perfect. (laughs) And it always seems to be the case throughout history. Now, within the past few days, both Trump and his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, intended to steer the fear of the pandemic. There is very, very real fear of the pandemic. They're trying to steer it to the Chinese very clearly without facts, obviously. My sense is that uh, this pattern of finding some other to blame is integral to hate and extremism. Chinese and others are the non-whites spreading disease. They, they say that the federal government is using the pandemic as an excuse to, draw, to destroy our people. That, I think, is really, it's something new under the sun, that the federal government is using the pandemic as an excuse to destroy our people. I wonder if you could please comment on that. One of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kat. How are you? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think it really gets back to that fundamental notion of fascism as being this kind of palingenetic rebirth, this idea that there is a core of the nation um, and that, uh, you know, there is an external threat to it um, that you can easily identify, um, you know, whether or not it's actually based in any uh, objective reality. Um, but mm. uh, <laughs> othering a you know, othering a vulnerable community that uh, you can point to and say that, you know, these are the people who are the source of, you know, any number of disparate issues. And Uh that, you know, if we, you know, if we as a nation get back to our fundamental character, um, then, you know, we will become, uh, you know, we will become noble uh, and, and successful and prosperous again. Talking about the Proud Boys, this whole thing about macho, you know, it does seem to me over the many, many years of Western civilization, being macho, being the tough guy, being the ruler is just very, very important. And I think some of the people, and we've known, uh, gay bashers are worried about their own sexuality. And I can't help but think that some of this Proud Boys macho stuff is part of that as well. Um, and there's something called the accelerationist wing of the of the white power movement. And I have long thought that with the Trump right wing uh, being so close to Israel and the whole right wing support for Israel is not about 
Judaism, it's about the rapture. And I think accelerationists are something to do with that, that there'll be some massive uh, uh, war, uh, that, that the rapture will come and the good Christian people will be saved. And where that will happen is in the uh, real estate, which is now known as Israel. What can you tell us about the accelerationist wing of the white power movement? They're trying to bring it on quicker. What, what do they hope to achieve? Yeah, well, the accelerationist wing is kind of the most extreme members of what's already a really extreme movement. Um, their main goal is to establish a white ethno state or a national socialist state. And they think that they can't do that through building a mass movement or working through traditional political channels. So instead, they believe that the system that we live in now needs to be dismantled. And it's something that they refer to as system collapse. And they argue that the best way to do this is really through violence and through acts of terrorism. Um, and they think that when the system collapses, that there will be a power vacuum there. Uh. And so they're organizing now so that they can help bring about this collapse. And then in that chaos, that they'll be there to kind of fill this void and come to power and create a state that is built on ethno-nationalism. So it's really the revolutionary vanguard of the white nationalist movement, one that openly calls for violence and venerates people who have committed acts of terrorism in the name of white nationalism. And, and one thing I, I've been wondering about, too, um, I, I find it interesting, their use of the term religious freedom, They've, I find it interesting that the religious nationalists use the term religious freedom when what they're actually doing is denying the freedom of others, black people, LGBT people, Muslims, uh, to be free from discrimination. Have you guys looked into that, what they call religious freedom? That's sort of an interesting wedge. I mean, everybody likes the idea of religious freedom. Right. It's a way of sort of entering the more mainstream conversation, I think, by using a term like religious freedom. It's something that we see used very frequently in conservative circles. Um, but, you know, within those circles and within the far right, the idea of religious liberty is really the shield. And it's used to kind of put forth policies that demean anyone who falls outside of this white evangelical Christian patriarchal framework. Um, so especially people like LGBTQ individuals, um, non-Christians, and it's used to deny them their civil liberties. A few years ago, somebody who was then a friend on Facebook told me that the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, is an example of a racist hate group. I'm not kidding you. He actually thought that. And it baffled me. Then I, I thought about that a lot. P racists don't think of themselves as racist. It's just who they are. It's what they do. And that when anyone points out racism, that alone, the act of pointing out racism for them is racism. Have you come across that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we see people who are, you know, clearly have racist beliefs not refer to themselves that way. They, you know, instead paint themselves right. as pro-white or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, we have a really clear and principled stance on what constitutes a hate group. And that's a definition that we crafted with law enforcement and the academic communities. And it's one that is consistently applied, that we, you know, we have a whole research process and a whole research team that looks at each and every one of these groups and carefully considers when we actually apply that label, um, you know, just as any group that we label a hate group has the right to criticize us and that is constitutionally protected, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, you know, we have a right to list them as a hate group um, when they meet our specific criteria. Um, you know, our goal is really to educate the public and the media about the activities of the hate group and to expose their ideas when they enter the mainstream. And, you know, that's what we're here to do. And we clearly list the criteria that we use for that designation um, and the reasons that specific groups are all listed on our website. Which is splc.org, I'm guessing? It is splcenter.org. splcenter.org. Um, and it's, 
you guys are keeping so busy. There's so much uh, racism and hate out there, and people don't want to be seen as haters. What, what can citizens do to push back effectively? I can't help but think that since Trump became president, uh, your coffers have been uh, better than they were before because people understand what he is and what you do. Uh, so what can people do to push back effectively without unnecessary provocations, which could lead the other side to violence, uh, against hate in their communities? What can people do effectively? I mean, the probably the thing that people can do is, is really organize their communities. And we publish resources to aid members of the public to understand the issues that they're dealing with. Um, and help inoculate their communities against uh. hate and extremism. And we want people to be holding their elected officials accountable and pushing them to take, you know, loud and principled stances against hate and extremism and electing people who, who hold up those principles. And is there... Uh, for tax purposes, I mean, of course, you're never turning down contributions, I wouldn't think. But is there a 501c3 part and a 501c4 part that people wouldn't get tax credits for? We uh, have a 501c3, and we recently established a 501c4. Um, so that is our um, our sort of action wing where we uh-huh. can engage in, in more political activity. And that part is not tax deductible, but people rarely give on for that reason. Well, again, mm-hmm. what's the website again, just in case people missed it? It's splcenter.org. Splcenter.org. you got to keep on moving, keep on marching to that freedom land. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having us. Uh-huh.